In the Bible, Babylon is portrayed as a wicked city, one where vice and confusion reign supreme. According to this tradition, this was due to the Tower of Babel, which the Almighty destroyed as punishment for humanity's hubris. The Tower, for those who aren't familiar, was a massive undertaking by the first humans following the Great Flood, in which they sought to build a structure that could reach heaven. In response, the Almighty confounds their speech so they can no longer understand one another, and scatters them throughout the globe. In much the same way, Germany in the aftermath of World War I was seen as the modern equivalent of this biblical Babylon, with political leaders seemingly speaking the same quote-unquote language in an attempt to build something that was doomed to failure from the start. And yet, despite its being short-lived, the Weimar Republic continues to fascinate as well as educate, not just because of its political instability and uncertainty, but its freedom and creative output. How and why was the Weimar Republic formed? What were its achievements, and what ultimately contributed to its downfall? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to a special two-part episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Unless you were a member of the Triple Entente, that is, Great Britain, France, and Russia, the years following World War I were trying times for the former opposition, that is, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and Germany, known collectively as the Central Powers. The Ottoman Empire was heavily weakened and would finally fall in 1922 after over 600 years of rule. Austria-Hungary was broken up as well, with its vast land and territories becoming many of the independent nations that constitute Central Europe today. Of the Central Powers' three major players, however, perhaps none had it as rough as Germany. Per the famed Treaty of Versailles, which was drafted and signed in Paris on June 28, 1919, five years to the day after the war's start, Germany was deemed solely responsible for all loss and damage incurred during the four-and-a-half-year-long conflict. This article, known as Article 231, became known as the War Guilt Clause and required Germany to disarm, surrendering many of its territorial possessions and even pay reparations to certain countries within the former Triple Entente and their allies. The total cost of said reparations was assessed at the time at 132 billion gold marks, or 31.4 billion U.S. dollars, the equivalent of some 442 billion U.S. dollars today. Some, such as the British economist John Maynard Keynes, felt the clause too excessive and that such reparations were counterproductive, whereas Marshal Ferdinand Foch of France thought the treaty too lenient on the Germans. These conflicting sentiments continue to be expressed by historians and economists alike to this day, with some even going as far as to blame the Treaty of Versailles for the outbreak of the Second World War, though this is a bit of a stretch. There were, of course, countless other factors which led to this second outbreak of war, which we will discuss in both parts of this episode. Regardless of one's opinion on the treaty, it's unanimously agreed that the Germans' resentment was palpable. After all, they too had suffered insurmountable losses during the war and were exhausted from all the fighting, including that which took place on their very own doorstep. In the final days of the conflict, with imminent defeat on the horizon, a revolution had broken out in Germany. Known as the November Revolution, after the month in which it took place, it single-handedly managed to topple the constitutional monarchy that was in place at the time. Its ruler, Kaiser Wilhelm II, abdicated the throne, ushering in a new era for Germany, albeit one that wouldn't last very long. Between November 1918 and August 1919, two left-wing political factions vied for power over the emerging government. The Independent Social Democratic Party of Germany, or USPD, favored a Soviet-style economy and called for immediate peace negotiations in order to end the war. Its opposition, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, or SPD, favored a parliamentary system of government and supported the war effort. 
On November 9th, just two days before the armistice that would end World War I, a member of the SPD, Philipp Scheidemann, proclaimed the birth of the German Republic from the steps of the Reichstag, the German seat of government, infuriating the faction's leader, Friedrich Ebert, who felt that a national assembly should make that decision. A mere two hours later, just a little over a mile, or two kilometers away, members and supporters of the rival USPD declared Germany a free socialist republic. In a frenzy, and an act whose legality remains unknown, the former imperial chancellor, Prince Max of Baden, transferred his executive powers to SPD leader Friedrich Ebert, who reluctantly accepted. In the interim, a makeshift government body known as the Council for the People's Deputies was instated to serve as a temporary cabinet of ministers. Consisting of three SPD members under Ebert's leadership, as well as three USPD members under the authority of one Hugo Hasse, it sought to restore political order in Germany. For two months between the end of the war, on November 11, 1918, and January 1919, it issued a number of reforms and decrees that would drastically change German policy, many for the first time. An eight-hour workday, for example, was introduced, as well as agricultural and domestic labor reforms, and even national health insurance and welfare relief. Among these policy changes, however, universal suffrage was one of the biggest, granting all citizens 20 years of age and older, including women, the right to vote in both local and national elections. Despite these socio-political achievements and advancements, a great schism still split the country in two. The leftist factions were arguing amongst themselves for control over the government, fearing that it did not have the best interests of the working class in mind, while the far right opposed democracy, fearing it would weaken Germany even further. Amidst this dissension, a communist organization known as the Spartacus League armed themselves in an attempt to establish their own form of government, but were quelled by paramilitary units known as the Freikorps. Several deaths and injuries were reported in the various street fights that had broken out. By summer 1919, something had to be done. With radical left-wing factions barely able to organize and with constant infighting taking place in the Reichstag and Berlin as a whole, the National Assembly decided to meet in neutral territory, so they reconvened in Weimar, a town roughly 176 miles, or 284 kilometers, to the southwest of the capital. There they drafted and signed the Weimar Constitution into effect on August 11, 1919, officially establishing the first parliamentary republic in Germany's history. Friedrich Ebert served as its first president. The parties in favor of democracy had obtained a solid 80% of the vote, and this new republic would forever be unofficially known as the Weimar Republic, in honor of the city where it was conceived. Perhaps as to be expected from the events leading up to its formation, there was trouble from the start. In fact, the first four years of the Weimar Republic, 1919 to 1923, were known as the years of crisis, as they were marred by turmoil and struggle. The first was a veritable food shortage, whose origins began during the war itself. In 1915, in an attempt to stop mounting hunger in Germany, the then-government ordered the nationwide slaughter of all pigs so as to save produce such as turnips and potatoes solely for human consumption. As late as 1922, four years after the war's end, rations were still in place, with each citizen only allowed 22 kilos, or 48.5 pounds of meat per year. This, coupled with mass inflation, in which the German Papiermark depreciated in value from 4.2 marks per U.S. dollar at the beginning of the war to 1 million marks per U.S. dollar by 1923, led to great disillusionment amongst German citizens. Despite the war being over, the daily struggle continued, which naturally swayed the public's opinion regarding the new Weimar government. On the far left, communist groups accused the Social Democrats in charge of betraying workers and their ideals and sought to overthrow the republic to establish a communist regime. On the far right, heavy opposition to the democracy was vocalized in public rallies and gatherings. They called for a rigid authoritarian state like the previous German Empire. In such a climate as this, tensions naturally arose, and it wasn't long before talk turned to action.
1919, just months into the Weimar Republic's establishment, the Bavarian government in Munich was taken over by the communists, who, in turn, created the Bavarian Soviet Republic. It was quickly overthrown by the Freikorps, though they weren't always in the right themselves. On March 13, 1920, 12,000 Freikorps troops installed Wolfgang Kapp, a right-wing journalist, as Chancellor of Germany. Known as the Kapp Putsch, their aim was to undo the November Revolution, topple the government, and establish an autocracy. This idea was backed by many factions within the Reichswehr, German armed forces, though it too was ultimately dismantled. As if uprisings weren't bad enough, assassinations began taking place as well. Largely right-wing motivated, they targeted Weimar politicians and representatives, namely those of opposing ideologies and or Jewish heritage. In August of 1921 and June of 1922, respectively, Finance Minister Matthias Erzberger, who had opposed the war, and Foreign Minister Walter Rathenau, who opposed German isolationism following the war, and who was also of Jewish heritage, were both assassinated at the hands of the organization Consul, an ultra-nationalist group. Though much of the public condemned this right-wing violence, such groups weren't deterred from acting out and making themselves known. In 1923, for example, the fateful Beer Hall Putsch took place in Munich. Staged by the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or NSDAP, their attempt at a political coup proved unsuccessful, though Germany had by no means seen the last of them. The NSDAP went by a few different names during its time, but all it took was one for history to remember the Nazi Party. Its first chairman was a charismatic, albeit fanatical German World War I veteran known as Adolf Hitler. Despite this tumultuous history, it wasn't all mayhem and misery. But that's all for this episode. Be sure to tune in next Thursday for the second part of this special episode on the Weimar Republic. If you like what you hear and wish to continue receiving quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There you'll find monthly support plans in three different tiers that fit any budget. Remember, any and all support, even listening, liking, and sharing is greatly appreciated. Tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast. Because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.